Hey, PhDivas listeners, this is Dr. Zain Yao, representing the humanities half of our podcast, alongside Dr. Liz Wayne, representing STEM. And we are a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across that very same STEM and humanities divide. In our first podcast episode of 2022, uh, thank you for your patience, first of all, we have a long, juicy conversation between the two of us about my new book that just came out the end of last year, Disaffected, The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America from Duke University Press. And so this is the first of a two-part series um, on this discussion, and I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, please stay tuned for the second part. And of course, if you want to buy my book, uh, you can get 30% off on the Duke University Press website if you're in North America or on combined academic publishers if you're in part anywhere in the rest of the world. And the code for 30% off is E21YAO. Um, enjoy our conversation. Hey. Hi, Zine. Hey. Yes, like you have two computers, two hands and two things. It's like you're double fisting. Ooh, <laughs> I have not double fisted in a very long time. That is grad school, Liz. Also, grad did you know school. that in the UK, you can't say that because what? for them, it only it doesn't mean what it means in North America. Wait, wait, is it a sexual thing? Yes. It's a sexual thing in the U.S. too. Yeah, but it doesn't mean the drinks thing at all. So like, there's more. Like, people getting extremely offended when like Americans come up to the to a pub and say like, "Oh, just gonna be double fist," and people are just being like, "Like, get oh, out!" <laughs> like, what? Absolutely horrified. I see. You have a growing vocabulary of things that uh, you learned in the U.S. that do not mean the same thing in the U.K. It's really interesting. I think you should actually just have like a ongoing list of them. And then, yeah, let's add double fisting. Let's start off 2022 with double fisting. <laughs> okay, I should realize yeah. that. Yeah. Yes. And really happy at the very beginning of 2022 to be catching up with you, Liz. Yeah. Happy New Year. Yes. Happy New Year. <laughs> I'm actually, what I am hopeful about this year, um, <laughs> listeners, is I think that this might be the beginning of the downfall of the British monarchy. What? That's bold. Yeah. Oh, I mean, not what does that mean? I don't want to jinx it, but well, because <laughs> Ghislaine Maxwell was found guilty of mm-hmm. um, sex trafficking, and now it looks like Prince A- um, Andrew is then failing to fight against all the accusations that you know he raped underage girls with Jeffrey Epstein. Because oh. basically, you know, he does—he's not even arguing that he's innocent. He's just trying to argue that by technicality, he can't be prosecuted. Oh. See, yeah. I was I just avoided that part of the internet and <laughs> apparently I should not have. Oh yeah. It's it's what's satisfying is like the judges are not having it. Like he first tried to claim that he didn't know Jeffrey Epstein and then there's like all this evidence he didn't know Jeffrey Epstein and then he tried to be like, "Oh, but like but then he um Victoria signed this thing in Florida that says that like it should absolve anyone who could be connected with Epstein." So you're like, "Oh, so you're trying to make a defense that you do know Epstein and you should be covered by this when he said he didn't know before. And there's also this infamous interview he did where he claimed he couldn't have done it because he was like eating pizza in like this chain pizza restaurant and he can't sweat. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. Um, what? Yes. He claimed that he couldn't sweat because during the war he had excess adrenaline or something like that. And I so of course like the lawyers have been like, so Where's the medical evidence you can't sweat? Also, if any royal appeared in any sort of chain restaurant ever, people would remember about that for ages. You would. Where are the receipts, man? Where are the receipts? Exactly. There's no... <laughs> anyways. But anyways... Right, so follow like the British monarchy. Mm-hmm. All right. 2022, we'll have to revisit this podcast interview. Yeah. But Dr. Mm-hmm. Yao, I would like to talk about you and this amazing thing that you did. Um that was a huge accomplishment for 2021. And that was to be disaffected for so long that you wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you've gone on tons of book tours. Well, okay. You're, you're, you're okay. You haven't gone on tons, but you've been doing interviews. You have an upcoming book tour in, in the U well, in America coming up in April, which I'm so, so Hopefully sad. I, I can't. It's safe be there yes actually maybe none of us can be there um and this is such a huge undertaking and so uh for the listeners um 
if you want to hear more of a deep dive, I recommend that you listen to the last episode we had where Zine um, spoke with several um, women of color academics where they broke down each chapter of the book. And um, I think that's going to be a very exciting discussion. But today, you'll have the joy of listening to me interview Zine, Dr. Yao, on uh, how to be disaffected and what that means for um, women and people of color and queerness Mm -hmm. and the things. And so normal disclaimer, I am a scientist. (laughs) 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 Um, Actually, wait, sorry, Zion, but there's this random story. Do you remember when I came in like, what, 2018 and I was in your class? So you want to tell this story, Zion? (laughs) Well, I I mean, you're the one who experienced it because but basically (laughs) um, in 2018, from our previous episodes, listeners might remember, uh, Liz came to London um, because she had been invited to do some talks um, elsewhere in the UK. And I managed to sneak Liz into my seminar. Mm-hmm. Um, and she got to engage with some <laughs> undergraduates in English where, who did not take her expertise in biomedical <laughs> engineering and cancer scientists as uh, a sign that she would be proficient at our discipline. Is that a nice way to put it? Liz? She's being modest. They did not appreciate me at all. So here we are, we're in class or sitting and I'm just, you know, like, Oh, I, I'm like, um, it was basically like, if you've seen that commercial, that Papa John's commercial where Shaquille O'Neal, you know, really big seven foot four or something foot basketball player. Uh, he puts on a wig because he's trying to do the undercover boss, except it doesn't work because everyone's like, you don't, we know you're Shaq. Um, that was me. So I'm sitting in this class and I'm like, oh, I'm just one of you. Don't worry. Don't mind me. I'm just one of you. And they're all like, we know that you're not supposed to be here. And so they asked a question. Zion asked a prompt uh, from the movie discussion of like film theory they were talking about. And I said something and the student looks at me and has the audacity, the caucasity even, the <laughs> British audacity to look at me and say, stick to science. She was like, don't, don't just stick to the science. And I was like, excuse me, I have a PhD. I will slap you with my diploma. What? <laughs> and then it just like, and then I was like, oh, I'm over this. This must be some British humor. I do not get it. I was like, cause what I said was, I don't even remember what I said, but it actually, it wasn't like, I don't know. It, it wasn't worth the stick to the science. Um, I was like, aren't you guys freshmen? Don't come at me. <laughs> anyway, so this conversation will be better than that. <laughs> um, I will not stick to the science. I did not learn any lessons. So, Zine, um, are you nervous? Um, a little bit, because I guess we haven't quite done something where you've interviewed me, not for a long time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like maybe in the first year of the podcast, we did something like that where like, this is a real flashback. Like I went to Liz's lab and she came along with me to an archival visit. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then you came to my lab and you saw me commit atrocities. Yeah. We don't need to get into that. (laughs) We will not. But you can check out the first season if you want to. Um, We little grad students. We little grad students. Look at us now. Look at us now. You have a book. So let's start off with that process of writing a book. I mean, what an accomplishment, right? But you've been working on this for a long time. And in fact, this was the kind of child of your dissertation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So especially for if you're listening um, in the non-humanities, like the academic monograph is like the gold standard by a university press. Um, And it's sort of like trying to create 200 something pages of like all like peer review quality research that is also this original contribution. Um, And uh, in my case, like it was built on my dissertation, but I had to rewrite the entire thing. Mm. Uh, Like, and the chapter that I'll be talking about to Liz about in detail later on uh, about black women doctors was one that I actually wrote from scratch um, for the book manuscript, but wasn't, didn't exist in my dissertation. So it was just a really intensive process. So I graduated my PhD in 2016, and then I had a two-year postdoc 
And the first year of the postdoc, I was so I was so ill, I found it very difficult to do any kind of work. Um, mm-hmm. But then my second year, uh, before going off to England, then I was able to get myself in gear and I managed to get all that manuscript stuff done and sent out by the end of 2018. And then it came like the next few years, like was like um, the whole thing had to get peer reviewed. I need to get readers reports. So what do you um, mean um, if you take a step back? Oh, I don't know if I have reverb. What do you mean by um, you got the manuscript out? So you worked on the manuscript and then you sent it where? What is What does that mean? So the process of doing a first book in the humanities, um, you, as you're also doing that research, you have to also be t- usually talking to editors to figure out like which university press is a good fit for my work. Is would be a good fit for a particular series. Like for me, I'm really amazed to end up with Duke University Press because that was always my dream press. Like as a grad student, reading work that to me was extremely exciting about race and queerness and gender, like that stuff was um, overwhelmingly coming from Duke. And so like I was mm-hmm. like, oh, if only I could end up there. And I was really, really lucky that that ended up being the case. Um, and so actually it was several um, MLA, MLAs ago, which is the Modern Language Association, the largest literary studies organization in the world, where I first met up with my editor from Duke um, and pitched the book. And she said that they would be interested. And so then the as I continued to talk to other editors at other presses, I sort of narrowed down which ones were particularly interested. And then I think we then send a preliminary package that is like a sample chapter, um, outline, uh, this, and a letter proposal, um, which is quite an intensive process mm-hmm. unto itself. And then after that part, you have to only submit the full manuscript to just one place. And so you can't do simultaneous submission yeah. much the way that you can't for journals. And so that's why the process typically is slow because there's a lot of stuff to be reviewed. Um, and I also say that the best pr- university presses, uh, best academic presses are the ones that require a full manuscript. Not all, not, not all places do. And especially I think in the UK, because there's a different ethos around book publishing and there's a different like timeline that's expected much faster. Like usually you could do it with, I think two sample chapters in your intro, but Duke wants to review the entire thing. And mm-hmm. so it's like, you have to get reviewed by the editor and accepted. Then you have to get the, go, have blind peer review of the whole manuscript. And then you get, um, get those that back. And then you go ahead with the decision. And usually they don't accept at that point, but I was very lucky that they did. Um, then you have to do the revisions and they have to be accepted by the reviewers again. And then it has to go to the board of a trust, uh, of editors, the editorial board, and then get approved. And so it takes a number of years down that line and so many different stages of like revisions and then um, smaller revisions and then say like the copy edit stage and then checking the proof stage. And then finally 2021 came out and the (laughs) pandemic didn't help either. (laughs) Obviously not. Um, This is really fascinating to hear you talk about because you know, from the science side, um, peer review, this process sounds very similar, except you had to send in a whole book, which, you know, I'm scanning the pages and there's, you know, some 300 pages here. And um, when I send in a journal article, it's, um, you know, it's not that maybe a tenth of, of that. And so, this is really interesting. And it's also interesting that there is some um, decision making that goes into which journal you submit to, or sorry, which uh, academic press you send to. And that's similar to thinking about which journal you send to and what mm-hmm. kind of message that you want, which audience, who's going to review this, who's going to see that and how you write it. Um, you know, all of that seems very, very similar, which is really interesting to hear. Um, yeah. It's really interesting and terrifying. <laughs> It is. And I feel like you pour so much of yourself into it. And I feel in the humanities, and I don't know if there's an equivalent in sciences, there's a real sense, I think, of like your coming of age is when you have a book out in Mm. the world. Like until Mm -hmm. then, it's at least for me, like I felt like I wasn't yet like a full scholar until I have Mm -hmm. a book out because that really establishes your identity. Like having your first like published article, yes, but the book in particular, it feels like a real coming of age um, turning point. Yeah. You know, I would say... For me, it's the it is that article. You know, you don't exist until you have something that people can look at, and um, you know, presentations are helpful in the interim, and even review papers can be good. But people want to see the data; they want to see what you write, 
and they uh, really start judging like your data, like how rigorous is this person? How deeply do they think about the problems? How do they present the information? Like how good is their work? And they really, you know, that comes out in the papers. They don't want to really hear anything else or at a certain point, they don't want to hear anything else. And if you, the longer you go without publishing, the more you kind of leave the ethos of people's minds, but people mm-hmm. might also start to think, well, maybe you're not really that good. Yeah. Uh, and it's really, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. I'd say like, cause I'd say that it's like that for us too, for journal articles, but it's like the book has like a particular weight in terms of like really establishing what your status is. I guess like mm-hmm. as a complete outsider, it reminds me of like when you got like Liz has been very successful with grants lately. Yay! <laughs> like sort of the sort of fanfare around that and the way that it like advertises like this is your project for the next couple of years. Like mm-hmm. some, it, it's sort of similar for us in a book way, even though like you, you're doing the work. Um, and so it's like a different point mm-hmm. in the actual academic process. But I guess the sort of fanfare and the way that it makes your name is sort of similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think maybe we should talk about that whole, that whole um, ethos process later um, because, you know, winning a grant and when you win it and the, all things you have to do afterwards is really, really interesting in terms of career. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned for another episode. <laughs> hey, I'm interviewing. I'm interviewing. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. See, Zion is always taking over. I never get to say anything. Okay, I'm joking. I get to say tons of things like right now. So you went through this whole book process um, and there was this mentioning those appear between when they said, sure, we'll accept your book to when now you have to write the book and all of the chapters. How did you, so it seems to be a lot of. Oh, so actually you have to completely write the book before they'll accept it. Oh, okay. But they, did you just, but you said there was a point where you gave them like a chapter and an outline. Yeah, because they, so because it's such an intensive process, they have to have an initial like, we are willing to look at the full manuscript. Okay. That's what I mean. So there's yeah, a willingness to look at the manuscript and that peer between, yeah, we'll look at it to like, now you have to write it. That's maybe a year or so. And it seems very open-ended. And so how did you structure that time and, you know, getting that feedback so that, you know, you knew that you were writing the right book, mm. you know, all the chapters involved. Well, people approach it differently, but in my case, actually, when I sent out the sample stuff, I already had the whole thing written. okay because I wanted to be fully prepared because I think like some people they like getting the acceptance for uh, knowing that a press wants to use full manuscript to write it but in my case I wanted to have it fully in hand because then I felt like I'd be able to write a far more convincing book proposal because I'd actually have Mm -hmm. a sense of what it looked like overall and Mm -hmm. yeah and then the the feedback I'd get initial feedback I'd get I think would allow to help me guide the whole draft as opposed to it would have been impossible for me to write like the majority of my book in a year. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot happening. So that still means though, that you did have this period where you were just writing. Did you get feedback from people? Um, How did you kind of go about like the planning that it takes the dedication, certainly to write, review, edit, research, rinse and repeat, and probably get some outside feedback. Um. It's, it's really hard. And I think that's why I like, it's much like the, like writing the dissertation in the humanities where um, like, you can't just put together separate papers. Like you have to sort of have an overall vision of an inter of your intervention. And it's one of those things where like I scheduled conferences as different goal points um, and writing mm. different chapters. I also applied to the first book institute um, for the, at the Center for American Literary Studies, which I highly recommend, which is one of the few book institutes of its kind for first book authors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very competitive. They only accept like 10 people a year, but it allows you to go through this intensive week-long process where you um, workshop part of your work and see what does it mean to like think of it as a book participating in the conversation as opposed mm-hmm. to just the dissertation, which is just trying to to understand even what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so again, uh, one thing I want to stress is there's a lot of advice out there about the writing process that has to do with like, you know, make sure that you write X words a day, 500 words a day, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Write your dissertation this much time, write your book in this much time. This does not work for me. And in fact, it made (laughs) my mental health way worse um, Mm -hmm. because I felt like 
there was a mold I was supposed to follow in terms of what my work ethic was supposed to be like, and I couldn't fit it. And it felt like a, a failing on my part. And, and it wasn't like I write, um, and fits, fits and bursts and, and this intense escal escalating fashion of like, you sort of just imagine the sort of graph of like, you know, there's barely any writing, then all of a sudden da -da -da -da, intensity. And then like, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I sort of have to fall in love with a thing and have the muse come to me. Um, like I could do the, the research, I could do research and organizing in a way that is methodical, but the writing for me isn't, it, it almost comes, it's almost like writing poetry or something for me. It has to actually have an emotional component where I can see and create something that is beautifully crafted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would, I would honestly, what you just described is what I now experience as a professor writing grants. Mm. And what I now see in other faculty and what helps me kind of um, contextualize what I saw from the outside when I was a grad student going, like, why did my advisor just leave for two weeks? <laughs> like, okay, they went off the face of the earth, right? Or they're just like completely distracted because they're writing the grant. And, um, you know, now when I think about managing my time, you know, they'll often say like for writing like a NIH R01, which is like a gold standard for the National mm -hmm. Institute of Health. They're like, you should be starting your grant like a year from when it's due or conceptualizing. And there's so many things you should be thinking about. And similarly, these writing institutes that you can join, having uh, accountability groups, but a writing schedule. And like what you're saying, in reality, like we always have all these plans and there are these people and strategies all out there. And it also comes down to like, well, how do you write? <laughs> and a lot of times it's um, really hard to find dedicated time to write the way I could as a grad student. I, mm -hmm. As a grad student, I could, with some level of ease, um, ignore everyone and kind of be a little bit irresponsible and like my other like other responsibilities to say, no, I'm going to work on this paper. I'm going to work on my dissertation. And now it's like I have, I have to teach class. Um, I have to answer to my graduate students or I have to do some admin work. And it's so hard to find that dedicated time that the short bursts end up being really important for me where the only time I can really block off time is like, like the week it's due or something or two weeks, right? And every other time it's like, well, find time when you can. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting um, in the heart and soul and like con the con conception of a grant um, because the grants, I don't know, I didn't actually say what a grant was, but you know, that's the proposal you write to funding agencies and it's your mm -hmm. bread and butter. It becomes one of the most important things. Um, the paper is important for the outward production, you know, how you show your scientific information, but the grant becomes like, what am I doing and why? And why am I the best person to do it? Mm -hmm. And where do I think science is going? And, you know, they'll tell you how many pages are due. They'll tell you maybe some headings, but the rest is up to you to convince, to, to inspire even to wow, to go like, okay, I want to fund this person. And I, and in fact, I want to fund them over the hundreds or thousands of other people applying for the exact same grant. So there's a lot on the line, um, including your salary, um, depending on mm -hmm. which institution you're at anyway. Um, and you did it, <laughs> you did it. And um, what'd that feel like when you submitted your book? Well, it felt, the thing is like, as I described, the timeline is so long, like it, like the getting it, the initial okay from Courtney that Duke might be interested was like one part. And then like sending off my stuff and saying like, now they want to see the full manuscript. And then like, then knowing it was sent out reviewers with another, another step and then getting acceptance from the reviewers and then getting acceptance for the board. Sort of something that I've talked about before is like, not being quite able to celebrate fully. Mm. And I almost felt like I kept on like holding back emotionally uh, appropriately enough to the ideas of my book, <laughs> holding back emotionally because I didn't want to be hurt by, by being too excited or too happy in case like things didn't work out. Um, and I, I just poured a lot of myself into it. And if listeners have a chance to look at my book and the introduction is available for free on Duke's website. Like I think the very first line of my acknowledgements is to, is that I think that a condition which too often goes unspoken for writing a book is to stay alive. 
And like, yeah. I feel like that was a really real struggle. And it's because of, you know, good people in my life, like Liz and many others that managed to sustain me like emotionally, intellectually, um, you know, in, in community so that I could do this work. Mm-hmm. Honestly, Zion, yeah, I love those words. And that is such a good segue to actually talking about the book um, that I think we have to take advantage of it. Um, something that I, I was saying to Zion before we hit the record button, because our best in material always comes before we hit record, <laughs> was um, I was asking her, like, how did she you know, write something that was so much about disaffection that was also like so personal and so like, um, uh, it w- it was to me because I know Zion, the book feels very meta, you yes. know, like she's, <laughs> she's writing, she's writing about a thing and it would almost be in the, until you read the acknowledgements or like the ending where she's like, okay, I'm going to break the fourth wall, so to speak, or that, you maybe get a sense of her, but it's like she's writing about something, and then surprise, surprise, it's an it's a it's a metaphor, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's life, plot and twist. you know, it's a plot twist. Oh my gosh, the best it plot twist ever! <laughs> oh my god, and you know, for me, um, I would say that when I I read parts of the book, um, I read the the fourth chapter about black women. Um, let's see. The chapter is called, I'm flipping through the book right now, Objective Passionlessness, Black Women Doctors and Dispassionate Strategies of Uplifting Love. And so I read this chapter, I read the introduction, and I think I ended up reading the, like, <laughs> I read, um, uh, the last chapter and I was just like, you know, really in awe design. Yeah, I was. I, I was. And you know what? I remember like reading the book and going like, oh, I like this paragraph. I like this sentence. And then I thought, yeah, let's mark it. Let's remember this. It's my book. I could buy another one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like marking it up. And so um, I think you did something really special here. And um, I know, you know, I can't really give it the... Um, academic treatment the way someone in your field would, but I can just talk about ways that I thought they were interesting. And I was hoping that I could quote some of your own sentences to you, <laughs> Kevin, yeah. a real Kanye moment here. And we're going to talk about that. How's that sound? Yeah. Oh, no, that sounds wonderful. And I guess I'd also want to stress is like, I wrote something that of course is in my field, which is thinking about, you know, critical race, science, queerness in 19th century American literature. But I, what I'm hoping to do this book is to also give people frameworks that would be relevant for thinking about like how people are minoritized and marginalized mm-hmm. and sort of the strategies of power and emotion that are unspoken norms and what it means to deviate from them. Mm-hmm. And so I, it is something that I hope resonates with everyone. And especially cause like, I feel like the fourth chapter in a way, Liz, I meant as an homage to you. <laughs> oh my <laughs> so, gosh. Yeah. High praise. I guess also, should we just say what the book is about very quickly? Zion, you are a genius for many reasons. So Zion, why don't you talk about this book that you just released? It's called Disaffected. Okay. So the quick um, and dirty rundown is the title is Disaffected, the Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America. And in it, I'm exploring what I call unfeeling and the way it's racialized, queered, and gendered. And the way that we usually see unfeeling as a negative thing, I argue, is an, an important way of disrupting the way that we usually see that the way justice is supposed to happen and the way that literature is supposed to um, help the process of justice is to have my, marginalized people show their pain, show their emotions, and they get recognized by the dominant um, mm-hmm. order, and then they get rights. And this is like the framework that we continually see for all different forms of action. Um, or at least oh, many forms of action. And what I'm arguing is like, there's always actually been this sort of thread of dissent of the way that that is coercive, the way that that is an incredibly colonial process as one that's very guided by white supremacy that actually limits radical possibility. And I actually say like, what if instead of having to say like, no, we have feelings just like you, instead to say, actually, 
what does it mean to stay with unfeeling as a type of dissent, a type of dissatisfaction, a coping mechanism, a defense against a world that's structured on anti-Blackness, Indigenous dispossession, mm. uh, Asian indentured servitude, and so many other interlocking forms of uh, of structural oppression. That's... And, yeah. Maybe a way to say it also is, how yeah. does I don't care or refusing to care become a radical act when it's done from those from a, from a blow, as opposed to just thinking about unfeeling as the condition of those in power? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think those are very powerful words. And um, something that you do really well in the book is that you take this and kind of root it in history. You root it in like historical context of how it has been used or how being disaffected, how saying I do not care um, has been used by women for ages for and how that looks different in white women or black women, um, Asian women, queer women. And I think that's really, that's really interesting. So maybe um, you can talk about some of those things that you found that were different <laughs> or okay. how you found that. And yeah. Um, well, I guess maybe as a segue into the, the chapter that's for Liz, <clears throat> is the chapter immediately before it is about white woman doctors. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there I sort of trace like this familiar story about, you know, the quote, new woman and how women were editing, uh, white women were entering the medical field. And I sort of say that the sort of um, accusation of being frigid, um, which is a sort of queer unwomanliness, um, actually became, was at the same time also something that white women could subversively claim. Um, and that there's actually something analogous between um, the rise of anesthesia as a technology in the 19th century mm. as something that can freeze and numb and the type of like anesthetizing power of the white woman doctor who's able to have access to medical authority. And that it ends up posing a challenge in novels, um, which were so structured around the marriage plot, like who is, you know, Elizabeth Bennett going to marry is going to marry Mr. Darcy sort of mm -hmm. uh, narrative in the 19th century. Instead, the the sort of subgenre of the white woman doctor novel um, sort of took this marriage plot and had the question: Will she marry and become this uh, and become a heterosexual married woman, or will she be queer and choose her discipline and not get oh. married to men? Mm -hmm. um, and so I I talk about that and like sort of the queerness of it, but also like grounding how that sort of legibility is still much grounded in whiteness. Like all these white woman protagonists are usually like upper middle class. And I think it ends up being tied to the sort of the failures of white feminist advocacy for women's rights in the 19th century that they ended up throwing black women up under the bus. They, um, mm -hmm. they got so upset that black women uh, like um, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper supported black men uh, getting the vote um, before th uh, the amendments came for like woman, although that could probably be white women. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of see, I sort of end that whole chapter by saying like, there's, the way that we can see that that sort of white queerness and white frigidity being subversive, but only to an extent, like it still ends up being tied in limiting ways to normative ideas of the U.S. settler colonial nation. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I follow this with the chapter that Liz read uh, on black women doctors, and I want to point pointed out that like like the the way that black women doctors um, approached thinking about dispassion and a type of unfeeling that would be pathologized can't simply just be seen as a derivative of white women's. And I think like that's often like this, mm. the story we tend to get about anything. It'd be like, this is the, this is the general one, which is always the white one. And then it like, and this is how it happened for Asian people. Or this happened for black <laughs> people, you know? And actually these are very differently constituted experiences, um, although they're intertwined. Um, and so with uh, my chapter on black women doctors, I sort of point out that it's interesting that the genre of woman doctor novels is white woman doctors, which doesn't get very addressed. And instead I turn to Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who is an amazing poet, um, suffragist, um, activist, uh, speechwriter, novelist, and look at one of her novels as being about the potential for this young black woman being a doctor herself, which has never been the way it's read. It's always been read as her choosing between a white doctor and a black doctor, um, mm. as someone who is of mixed race heritage, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and then no one seeing that actually she has medical expertise herself. And that's what I argue. 
no that that's powerful and i it, it just resonates um <laughs> so much um that was one of the things that i kind of just kept thinking over and over when i read it when i read your chapter that like these are not my words and these were words that were often spoken over a hundred years ago that you're talking about in the story and the, the books and yet like this makes so much sense and even um thinking about like the solidarity or um lack thereof or kind of like partial solidarity with white women in academia mm-hmm. um and the kind of cluelessness about how it doesn't actually mean all women like most most people that i speak with are kind of well-meaning like with white women are, they're well-meaning but often unaware that they're um the ways they think they're supporting all women actually are not and they're also oftentimes unaware of how their experiences that have helped them have not extended to women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, as in that thing they think that is a common experience for women is not, or it is in fact, maybe just common for white women. Um, and then you can see it when it comes time to do certain things, to, to advocate for certain issues or um, when they decide not to be vocal or, yeah, mm-hmm. it, and it usually becomes like a I'm I'm fine, and I don't really understand what you're talking about. Um, yeah, and I think like one thread of that chapter, um, although I don't think it's the main one, is also this critique of this sort of white liberalism that there's like mm-hmm. a number of these white characters in these novels. They're shown for you know, like they're abolitionists, for instance, or they fight for the Union Army, but you can still see how deeply racist they are, mm-hmm. and like the way that the black characters have to navigate it because there's the complicated factor, like they're not obviously the white adversaries, but in some ways they're far more insidious. Mm -hmm. And so for instance, um, Iola Leroy has to navigate the fact that uh, this white Northern doctor loves her, but can't accept her blackness Mm -hmm. at the Mm -hmm. same time. And yet he's very well-meaning. And I think that's something I truly try to stress. Like he just thinks that he's going to be saving her and that Mm -hmm. she's just so tragic, but actually the projections of what was then known as the quote, you know, trope of the tragic Milana, um, is is something he is projecting onto her like she ends up she's not tragic and it turns out like she actually has a sense of humor when she actually is around people who aren't douchebags like him like Mm -hmm. and and yet he just sees her through this fantasy this white sentimental fantasy of what of him being this white savior yeah and i think you know along the lines of being disaffected the way that i interpreted or that i experienced this was that um, if the white women that you spoke of got to be disaffected by not caring about, they may say things like, oh, I don't care if I get married, mm-hmm. right? Or like, I'm going to marry when I'm ready, <laughs> right? And then they ultimately still think they get married um, and they end up doing quite well for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's all fine. And they found like a, a slightly less disagreeable person, right? you know, someone who's feminist enough, but actually they're really not, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but enough. They weren't the other person. And then, you know, going to the next chapter and it's kind of like, not only are you trying to fight against um, racism, but you're also fighting against like the white women as well. Like you're kind of being like, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for this. It's like, you see all of the things happening in your space and you know that you have to navigate the guy who is going to treat you like the tragic mulatto like or like the like i'm thinking about when i was the only woman in physics um and only black person and it's kind of like you can almost see it or you feel it coming a mile away and they're like they're gonna try to be nice to prove a point or like yeah or the they weren't interested in me but then they got to know me and then they became interested in me Cause you can see them starting to realize things like they're questioning some assumptions now and they now are opening their horizons, not really thinking about whether I want that horizon or not, but you can kind of tell that it's happening. And so you have to navigate that one. Like, oh, I don't want to hurt your feelings because I actually don't have any friends right now in physics. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or like you can't hurt their feelings, but also you don't want them to suck away all your feelings at the same time. Right. Because like, mm, nope. It, you know, if I actually respond the way I want to this, I know what's going to happen. This is going to become a big thing. It's going to exacerbate and I might alienate myself from everyone. Um, you might tell other people. And at the same time, it's like a, um, 
I have to disaffect myself against white woman tears. Mm -hmm. I have to uh, disaffect myself towards um, the, I have to play along and say, yeah, we're all the same. Yeah, no, we totally, I, I totally, Friends, that was my favorite show. Oh my gosh. Okay. I, you know, I also, <laughs> me too, right? And then, because if you don't say otherwise, you're also losing this, what little camaraderie you can have along those gender lines, but mm-hmm. you're also losing, you know, white women tears are powerful as well. They can also make your life bad. And so mm-hmm. you're fighting against all of that at the same time that you're trying to be, I just want to live. I just, I just, I literally just want to walk down the street and go to school. Like I didn't even want you to pay attention to me. Why is this mm-hmm. happening? Mm-hmm. And, and so I, like your comments and the quotes really read out to me that way. Yeah. I was going to say that like maybe some comparisons would be like the way that people talk about being unbothered, for instance, mm. or be like in other forms of like not caring that I think we recognize on a colloquial level in um, different minoritized communities of like this sort of calculus of refusals that we mm-hmm. have to engage in um, in order to center ourselves. But also like often it can't be like the grand act of refusal. Like, mm. but it doesn't mean that these smaller forms of resistance are any less valid because often they're gendered very deeply. And like um, near the beginning of this chapter, I, I talk about a lot of different uh, black feminist genealogies, but in particular, there's this classic essay by um, this histor- historian, uh, Darlene Clark Hine, who is one of the foundational like early black mm-hmm. women historians. And she has this essay that talks about the culture of dissemblance around black women as a means of survival. Um, as a way of like protecting like a type of psychic inner life and their tenderness as a way of like surviving violence, especially sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something I end up exploring in the chapter that there's also, the, I, I argue this homology between what was seen as um, black women's strategy of passionlessness during the 19th century, mm-hmm. which was a way to sort of distance themselves from all these like negative stereotypes of like, excessive affect excessive sexuality in a way of like controlling the, the um their sexuality but didn't mean the suppression of the sexuality it just means like not making available to whiteness yeah um, and so io leroy likewise in the novel like at the beginning she is basically having to continually dodge all these white men in the slave holding south who are trying to sexually assault her and then what she escapes to the union army then she has like this well-meaning white boss who is mm-hmm. then falls in love with her. And we can see that this is another form of coercion, that it's a, a different, more subtle form of coercion, but this is her boss that she has to navigate. She mm-hmm. can't like reject him outright in quite the same way. Like you, I think you see that she has to be very clever in terms of thinking about what does it mean to sort of preserve herself um, in these different scenarios. Yeah. There's a quote that you have pulled out here that um, by dissemblance, Hein clarifies, and this is the author you were talking mm-hmm. about, I mean the behavior and attitudes of Black women that created the appearance of openness and disclosure, but actually shielded the truth of their inner lives and selves from their oppressors. And I was, I wrote, I underlined it because I was like, yep, that's it. <laughs> that is, that's the tweet. That's it. That's me. Um, there's the dissemblance and um, their power to be able to disclose, like, you know, Zion and I have known each other for a long time. And I think um, there are times where um, people would say, like, you're so vulnerable or like you you say so much about you, you and you give so much of yourself. And like, you know, deep down, you know, what I was really thinking was, you know, I'm not I'm not the way you think I am, because the story I'm telling is the same story I always tell when the situation comes up. And so I like this is a story I've decided it is OK for me to tell. Um, because I have mally, it's I have worked through that so much that it doesn't actually affect me to tell someone that story. Um, this is a this is a part of me I've given up to the public ethos, mm-hmm. and so it, the delivery is performance. I mean, the vulnerability is performance, effectively at this point, and because I know that this will do something, but I'm not actually. You don't know me because to know me would be to know things I'm not telling you, which you, and. And also I knew there was truth and protection in the effect. Probably why I never said this out loud was because there's protection and not telling you that information. Because if I tell you there are things about me, horrors, troops, you know, desires, fantasies, scary things that I'm like, you don't even know me, then 
you might ask, and what would that do to my boundaries? Like the real boundary was the things that I don't tell you and things you don't know that you don't know. Um, and I think so, Zion, when we talk sometimes, I kind of talk about like this, the vulnerability and the power comes back because you have the, the opportunity to disclose and to choose who, when, and where you disclose to. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's the only power that you have. Um, <laughs> and and then here you are telling me that like someone's already theorized about this, like years, like hundreds of years, right? And that, that's pretty powerful to me that, you know, that was my coping mechanism. That was my way of walking through the world and sharing, um, mm-hmm. helping. Yeah. And I guess like, that's also why, like, I hope it resonates with, with people, particularly minoritized people is like, I think it does speak to, again, like the strategies of our everyday lives, but sometimes you just think it like, because we sometimes develop this in isolation, you don't realize that it actually, there's a collective history. There's a longer history. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not, and so your individual experience is not reducible to that, but I think it helps perhaps not think that you're alone, I guess. And maybe Mm -hmm. there's a way that, you know, you could, when people talk about their, their ancestors, like there's like intellectual theoretical ancestors, that maybe some of the the black women doctors that I talk about, Liz, like Rebecca mm-hmm. Rebecca Cole and Rebecca Lee Crumpler, which sound mm-hmm. very familiar as well because they were, had to navigate. Um, so these are the two the first two black women that we know who got accredited um, degrees at in medical school in in the U.S. and they had to navigate being the only ones. And so what I'm also arguing is that they didn't take this type of passionlessness to discuss with the sort of dispassion of of a of medicine and they combine these two forms of authority that are usually seen as being opposed to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that they do it in this really tactful ways to, for real political advocacy. And so I look at um, one of their uh, theses for the Finnish medical school, which is on the eye. And I just have this whole argument about how she is thinking about her embodied subjectivity as a black woman, but also, but in a way that's like really um, subtle and using medical authority. Mm-hmm. And the other one, like she wrote the first um, book that we know of by a black woman doctor in the US and like how like she sort of seems to hide her blackness until the end, but actually is quite, it's embedded throughout mm-hmm. in terms of thinking about which community, which um, like black girlhood she's prioritizing. Um, and mm-hmm. in terms of thinking about the importance of their health. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I like that you brought up this, um, the, this doctor narrative again, because, you know, when I kind of mentioned this idea that like the power, what little power you have um, sometimes when you're in an oppressed situation is the how, when, and where, you know, some of that becomes humor. Some of that becomes um innuendo some of it comes when you're talking to someone and only you know you're really talking above around and through them Mm -hmm. um or it's like if you know you know right and there's something about that kind of messaging and you know you can even see the humor right where the person she's flirting or the doctor is flirting with her and she's just like not only is she rejecting him subtly and he is just too bless his heart to realize it and quotation marks, bless his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's also asserting herself. Like she's doing so much with the same words by using other dimensions of communication. Mm-hmm. And I find that um, that use of humor and sarcasm and kind of these mild things or these subtle things rather are just super powerful. And, you know, you get into a space then where you find someone who knows what you're doing and then you can share that experience. Um, you know, it's just powerful. And I also think it's just like a really underrated thing that happens that I think a lot of my uh, people, like women, people of color colleagues do. I know like my black female friends do. Um, and it just like goes over the, the radar of lots of people for better or worse. Maybe they think you're too dumb to be that intelligent. <laughs> you know, but it's also like, a well this is what I'm doing today. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how I live another day and keep my sanity. This is how I stay light. This is how, how I remain um, encouraged. Um, mm-hmm. I want to bring out another passage that you had. And it says, um, um, in the first generation of white doctors, dis- sorry, let me start over again. <laughs> in comparison to the first generation of white women doctors discussed in chapter three, 
the first generation of Black women doctors received a fraction of the attention, accolades, and opportunities during their lives and continue to be sidelined today. And um, that line to me, and so this was in reference to talking about the first two accredited Black women doctors, um, American women doctors, Rebecca Lee Harris Crumper and Rebecca J. Cole. And um, I don't know, it really stood out to me like, uh, like, oh, that happened back then too. So it's been there since the beginning of time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and um, the kind of sidelining and the fraction of opportunities and the things that happen and how extraordinary it feels like you have to do things to get the same level of care and consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still were massive um, like advocates. Like they founded so many different uh, community institutions um, regardless. But like something that I also emphasize is like the, the history of thinking about voting rights in, in, the, um, in the U.S. is so much dominated by white women and black men. Um, mm-hmm. And yet the reason why is because this very, was a very deliberate effort of writing black women out of that history. And so this mm-hmm. is something that goes over the, the sort of tensions between the previous chapter and this chapter, um, where I talk about how there was literally uh, the white feminists who became super anti-black and like were really like crappy to Francis L. Watkins Harper um, were the ones who then wrote the history of women's suffrage. And so they literally <laughs> wrote the history to cut cuts and diminish the accomplishments of black women and other women of color. Yeah. And they probably were like, that's not what I did. Tears. All women. Um, Yeah. Um, It happens. Um, And I think it goes on later. I didn't underline it, but then to discuss the ways that they were talked about when they were earning their degrees, Mm -hmm. you know, the ways the doctor said, like, it was almost like, we don't think you're qualified. We'll begrudgingly give you this degree. Um, and it made me think about like all the ways that it, it can be challenging to get to that PhD defense, to get through your, um, you know, those seminal moments in your, in your PhD process and the kind of ways that people talk about, um, students of color, um, but ironically, they still get their degree and they go off and do amazing things after they earn that PhD mm-hmm. from, you know, writing more grants, successfully winning grants, um, writing papers, mentoring students, running companies, working in government. And it really kind of makes me think about um, what type of gatekeeping happens where that conversation becomes, I don't think they're very strong. I don't think they're good. And like, I don't know whatever, or like they seem to have had to deal with so many other stuff. They didn't do that one thing they wanted them to do, but then they leave and they do very well. And sometimes they're even the best, you know, if in terms of like notoriety, like who is the alumni you get back who like does something and comes back and you, you, you talk about, and it becomes this, like, how come those narratives aren't lining up? Mm -hmm. Um, and how much of their of their soul did you break? You know, mm-hmm. when you probably could have been uplifting them. Um, when are we going to change the narratives of what it means to get a PhD? Because I guarantee it was very similar to a. That's a conversation that happened for the first Black woman American doctor, and why is it still happening now? Mm-hmm. Or why should we expect that it would be different? Mm-hmm. And if that's you know, what it's sort of danger of seeing it as like, like seeing progress as linear, but also like as individuals like, as exceptional. <clears throat> and I think that's mm-hmm. also what is remarkable. I think that these women and uh, the real life women and uh, like Iola Leroy as a fictional character, I think they continually also try to resist being exceptionalized because mm-hmm. you can see how much they're dedicated to community because they realize mm-hmm. that they're not doing this, even though they might be the p- person who has gotten this degree, like they know that they've de- they have to give back because they're being supported by so many others. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Like it can't collapse into a sort of simplistic type of individualism of, uh, of how good they are. That being said, like one of them, as I sort of critique, like in her, in her book does sort of like end up blaming black people for, um, <laughs> for some of their 
right. uh, for some of their own illnesses, although uh, elsewhere, then she's also very critical of the way that, say, the police and like white doctors' racism contributes to, uh, to illness in, among uh, black populations in Boston. But yeah, like they, they are trying at least to, to think communally. So it's complicated. <laughs> um, I don't know, that type of um, inter-community dialogue critique i don't want to call it policing but the the critique yeah. that's intra and inter um in the group is is really interesting and i think to be honest uh, another form of thing you have to disaffect yourself of <laughs> um because there's just so much critique that comes and um it can be very challenging to figure out which ones are meaningful um that you also have to really develop a strong sense of self mm-hmm. um, because it, it'll come from people close to you. It'll come from people not close to you. It'll come when you feel happy and can handle it. It'll come in your worst moment and, and, and uh, it's not helpful to you, but it's always like a, a, a policing of appearance or um, presentation, mm-hmm. scientific rigor, voice, yeah writing twitter even when it's said to be rigor or science like you know that it's emotionally motivated even those couched in the language of objectivity uh and Mm -hmm. that's sort of like the paradox of what i'm trying to discuss as well um and a bit of what liz is saying uh something i talk about in my introduction is like the ways that like queer women of color thinkers have always sort of navigated the importance of feeling but also the way that unfeeling is important so they say Gloria Anzaldúa talks about in, in order to cope with hurt, I grew a thick skin. Or Audrey mm-hmm. Lord says, um, in order to withstand the wet weather, we had to become stone. But then also mm-hmm. critiques that this means that black women end up hurting other black women because they mm-hmm. tend to be the, in the closest proximity to them. So this is like a necessary sort of calculus of withholding and growing thick skins as in it needs for survival. But sometimes it can also lead to conflict, yeah, intercommunity conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the challenge that I find is that um, <clears throat> within that dynamic to mm, I'm trying to I'm trying to be eloquent and I think it's just going to be a ramble, <laughs> but hear me out, Zion. Mm-hmm. But so so given, you know, this quote and this idea that you just said that, you know, that sometimes we can be critical within the same group because of the um, level of disaffection <laughs> that we had to you know, muster. Um, One thing that I find is that I try very hard to keep that in mind um, when I feel as if I'm receiving some of that um, pressure from Mm -hmm. other people. Because I, I think it's important for me to be supportive of them, to realize, like, to really dissect what they're saying and what they mean um and to not um because i don't want to lose that sense of camaraderie or the friendship or i don't want to give it back and and make it something that we can never recover from i guess like i try to give grace um yeah. or at the minimum distance like physical distance as in like you know what i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let whatever is happening here dissipate and i'll try to come back later um or we won't come back at all but but i won't actually try to give it back to you in words or in like a other thing because i i know that what's happening here isn't something that's truly trying to be discriminatory or you know abusive or prejudiced you know what i mean i don't know there's it's it's like a different type of dynamic Mm-hmm. Um, yeah like you sort of recognize that people who are similar to you have also developed like coping mechanisms that mean that you can be seen as like difficult or prickly or callous and like and some so sometimes when people react negatively like you can recognize that even though it can be hurtful because it's coming from someone who's close to you like it's also coming out of a place of similar place of pain yeah yeah and worse i wouldn't I wouldn't want to give other people ammunition to say, as an example, black women are terrible to other black women, right? Or we're the worst towards each other, right? I think that narrative is far worse than 
the actual thing that may have caused the discomfort in the first place. Because a narrative like that will take over like wildfire and then become something that was like, all right, there has no context. There, there has no nuance to what really happened. Or it's a way of giving power or be- letting someone say, this is just as bad as um, white supremacy. or You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you get like, it can escalate to a level of like, well, why should I care if you guys do it to yourselves? And it's like, well, first of all, we're not talking about the same things. Right. And so I think that's another reason why I really try to be more thoughtful about it it's not that i'm perfect but just knowing what the danger of that narrative is is enough to kind of um make me take a step back yeah i hope you enjoyed the first of our two-part series between the two of us discussing disaffected my new book stay tuned for part two where we delve more into my positionality I wonder if so far the way we've been talking about unfeeling as a sort of racial and sexual form of resistance and dissatisfaction in everyday life might resonate with your own experiences of managing your emotional life. Maybe people telling you to smile, perform a certain way, the way that, you know, it seems like any sort of performance of emotion seems to be held against you. But also if you don't do it properly, that is also held against you. Anyway... Stay tuned for the last part, and thanks for listening. Look after yourselves and take care.